Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Lunar New Year to those who celebrate. Uh, and I have to say, it's just so good to see so many people in our church building uh, today. It's absolutely packed, except for the front row, which in Anglican terms means it's absolutely packed. Anyway, it's really good to have everyone back, and we're hoping that, God willing, through this year, we're going to have more and more opportunities to see each other together as well. Uh, We've got a great passage uh, today, one that really looks deep at who Jesus is. And when you understand who Jesus is, you get to see his remarkable power. When I uh, talk to people about Jesus, I get the feeling that very often people are happy to acknowledge Jesus uh, in some way uh, as a good man or maybe as a good moral teacher but not to go any further. You see, I think people are are kind of happy to have him be small and over there. You see, because when Jesus is kind of over there, then he, you'll have a small view of who he is in your life and the influence that he will have on the rest of the world. He's just over there. I can put him to one side. On the other hand, when, if you think that Jesus is connected to God, well, well, then he becomes glorious and large. He can do everything. And so the horizons on how you see Jesus kind of fall away, the barriers are removed, and you can see how remarkable Jesus' power actually is. It really all comes down to the identity of Jesus, who he is. A couple of Thursdays ago, we finished our last Christianity Explored course. We had our 10 people. Uh, who were part of that, and it was just such a joyful and amazing time um, with the people who were there. The the great power of Christianity Explored is we simply open the Word of God in the Bible, in Mark's Gospel, like we're doing here, and we read Jesus' words, and we see the episodes of His life as they are presented in the Bible. And after seven sessions, I can tell you that that group, uh, if you told them, Jesus is just a good moral teacher then every one of them would have said, that's too small. That's not enough to describe Jesus. Now, the idea that we would minimize Jesus is not a new thing. Famous uh, Christian author C.S. Lewis saw the same issue in his own generation, 70-plus years ago. He knew that many of his generation were familiar with Jesus, but but they were very happy also to call him something small and nothing more. So in order to challenge this view, uh, C.S. Lewis developed an argument which was begun about a hundred years previous uh, to, uh, to his day, that Jesus could only be one of three things, Lord, liar, lunatic. Have you heard this before, this argument? It's a pretty famous uh, argument for the person of Jesus. And the line of reasoning is famous as well. Here's a quote from his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that's this sort of thing, uh, a man who was merely a man and said this sort of thing, Jesus would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level uh, with a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. That is not left open to us. Well, I don't know if you noticed this in our Bible reading from Mark chapter 3 today, but the three categories that Lewis talks about are in view in our passage. You see, the impure spirits shout out that he is Lord. You are the Son of God, they say. The teachers of the law say that he's a liar. No, 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 not a son of God. He's a son of demons. And Jesus' own family thinks that he's a lunatic. Oh, he's just our son and he's out of his mind. So one of those claims says that Jesus is great. And two of those claims say that Jesus is small. And we're going to look today to see how Jesus responds in each of those cases so that we might see his remarkable power. It'd be so helpful if you could have open Mark chapter 3 in front of you to be able to follow along uh, with the story. If you're watching online, then you might like to uh, click on the link that's below the display window and click on the Bible Gateway verse. It'll take you right to the passage that we're looking at today. And I should just say that uh, here in the building and in the overflow room as well, there are copies of the transcript that I'm preaching from today. If for whatever reason, that would be helpful for you to have that transcript so you can follow along, if it helps you to understand, then our welcomers will, if you put your hand up, they'll, they'll distribute it to you. So just feel free to put your hand up and um, we'll uh, pass some of those out uh, as well. I'm going to pray for us and we'll get into God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege and joy it is of having your word in front of us today. Please convict our hearts of Jesus, who he is, and the remarkable power that he has. We ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. What brings us to our first group of people in the first category, it's the demons who call Jesus Lord by their phrase, the Son of God. Have a look with me at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all about what he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a boat, a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him, Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Let's focus, first of all, on the cry of the impure spirits here. We had an extended discussion back in uh, chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel about the idea of impure spirits and exorcisms. And if you'd like to go back to that sermon, it's on our YouTube page, you can watch that again. But one thing that needs repeating is the idea that if something is impure, then it is not connected to God. God is not present with it, and it doesn't come from God. And so every time impure spirits come up against Jesus, it is Jesus who shows that he, has, he is Lord, and He has authority over them. He's the one who tells them to shut up. He's the one who tells them to fall down. He's the one who tells them to get up, and they always obey. In our story today, I really like the fact that uh, Mark, as our storyteller, doesn't even mention the people who are being possessed by the impure spirits in verse 11. He just goes straight forward to the confrontation 
and Jesus' victory. And the victory is even more powerful when you see that there are a number of spirits who are being cast out, not one. And they all have the same declaration about Jesus. They say, you are the son of God. So it's like a continual testimony from the spiritual world as to the identity of Jesus. You are the son of God. Shh. You are the son of God. Shh. The son of God. Son of God. Son of God. That's what we're supposed to see in this story. And this title, Son of God, is important for us as readers of Mark's gospel as well. Do you remember the last time that this phrase, Son of God, has come up in Mark's gospel? Well, it's in the first verse of the first chapter, where Mark says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. This verse functions like a banner headline in a newspaper for the whole of the rest of the gospel that follows. And now that title of Son of God is no small thing. It's a title given to someone or something that is divinely appointed by God to represent God. And it's a phrase that comes out of the Old Testament. Now in the Old Testament, there are three categories of people referred to as sons of God. First of all, kings, like in our first reading from Psalm chapter 2, angels, and also the nation of Israel itself. So when you put that together, you've got God's people, the leader over God's people, and the message to God's people all being tied up in the title of Son of God. It's a very important title. It means you represent God. And so from the very first verse of the first chapter of his biography of Jesus, um, Mark tells us to the readers that we are to know Jesus is the Son of God. And when you know that, you get to see that title play out through the rest of the gospel. And we've seen it in the chapters so far. He powerfully comes with God's message, we're told. That uh, the message is the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Where does he go with this message? Well, he goes to God's people. He goes to the synagogues and in the townships all around Israel. And he's demonstrated God's power as well in his ability to forgive sins and to declare his lordship even over the Sabbath, as we saw last week. The voice calling out from heaven at his baptism was firm proof of God's approval of Jesus. So the Son of God was a divinely appointed and uh, was divinely appointed and represented God. And in Jesus, we see the full representation, the ultimate representation of God in human flesh. You see, the demons, they know who Jesus is. So to see him merely through this whole story as a good guy or a moral teacher, it's too small. It doesn't make sense of all the other things. I mean, even in our story today, when you know that Jesus is Lord, when you know that he is the Son of God, everything kind of makes sense. I mean, consider four things. First of all, the crowds. I mean, Jesus is not like some modern-day celebrity who has advanced teams working and has a lot of hype going on social media to drum up reactions and support. In verse 7, we're told Jesus keeps withdrawing from people and people keep coming to him to find him. The true Son of God is here. And so it's naturally uh, something that people are drawn towards. Secondly, just consider the scope of where people have come from. 
The places listed in verse 8 are real places, some as far as 200 kilometres away. What's particularly remarkable is that these are, these are towns of people that are not just from Jewish backgrounds. We're told that uh, people are coming from across the Jordan and in Tyre and Sidon as well. Mark is giving us just the, the tiniest little hint that maybe the scope of God's kingdom is going to go beyond just God's people in Israel, uh, that it will extend to all the nations as well. I should say that's good news for us who live here in Australia. But thirdly, the miracles. Jesus has come into the world and he's performed miracles that should be there if he is in fact the Son of God. It's not surprising that he's able to remove diseases and that impure spirits are knocked out and the people are amazed. And last of all, in the second episode of our passage in verses 13 to 19, Jesus brings together disciples and he gives them his power to go out. I mean, even if Jesus was just a healer or just a good teacher, those aren't things you can just pass to other people. Yet Jesus passes on his authority to his disciples. You see, if you're the Lord, if you're the Son of God, you have that authority. And so Jesus picks 12 to, to connect with God's work in the Old Testament. And these disciples are given Jesus' own power to go out and represent his ministry. Mark's reference to what they have authority proves that too. It was um, our ministry apprentice, Henry, who helped me to realise that Mark mentions only that they've been given the authority to preach and to drive out demons. It mentions nothing about healing and miracles. And we know from Matthew's account and from Luke's account that these things were also given to the disciples to do as well. So why has Mark only mentioned preaching and driving out demons? Well, Jesus is preaching and he's driving out of demons in this section are pointers towards his lordship as the Son of God. Mark is emphasising that the disciples are carrying out the ministry of the Son of God and going out with his message as well. So this is an incredible passage, isn't it? The demons have got it right. Jesus is the Son of God. The crowds show it, the distances they've travelled show it, the miracles and the teaching show it, and the appointment of the disciples shows it as well. Jesus is the Son of God according to Mark's Gospel. He's the one who represents God to us as Lord. When C.S. Lewis read the Scriptures and considered his three options, his conclusion was clear. He said, However strange or terrifying or unlikely as it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and he is God. At our last Christianity Explored course, after looking at the book of Mark across seven different sessions, every person that came along to Christianity Explored said they believe in Jesus as their Lord and King. Some people, can I say, for the first time, believing that too. Praise God for that. It goes to show that as Christians, it's our firm belief that if someone is going to truly know who Jesus, then they must come to the Word of God. They must come to the Bible to understand who Jesus is. Because when the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, affects your heart, it expands your view 
on everything about him, who he is and his remarkable power as well. When you see Jesus in a big way, you see how enormous God's love is for all people. And so from Christmas last year, right through our series in Mark right now to Easter this year, our church were giving away free copies of Mark's gospel to anybody who would like a copy of it. If you're in the room today, if you're in the top hall today, there are copies of Mark's gospel on the table as you head out. Please grab one. If you have a friend who you know would like one, grab one for them uh, as well. If you're watching on the live stream, all you have to do is text the, the, the number that's on the screen now. I'll make sure that tomorrow we send out a copy to you. We'll find out where you, what, the, what the best place to send it to is and we'll send one out to you as well because we know it's in the Word of God that people come to truly meet Jesus. Well, according to C.S. Lewis, if Jesus is not Lord, then the alternative explanations are equally as dramatic. It's interesting that in the section that we're, about to, to, that we're looking at today, the, the spiritual characters all call Jesus the Son of God, but all the human characters have a different view on who Jesus is. And so in those final 15 verses, we're going to see that the teachers of the law and Jesus' own family have their own views on who Jesus is. Brings us to our second point, and the teachers of the law belief that Jesus is a liar, the prince or the son of demons. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So as we've seen in the previous chapters, uh, the Pharisees and the leaders have formed their opinion and it's now set like concrete about who Jesus is. They uh, They believe that Jesus is working against God and his purposes. They believe that Jesus claims to speak for God, but he's in fact lying. Jesus is lying about who he is. Now, of course, that leaves them with the problem of where are the miracles coming from? Where's that power coming from? It's interesting that not for a second do they believe that the miracles are fake. They actually believe the miracles happen, but they need to explain it somehow. So as a blasphemer, there's only for them one source of power that can be on display. It must be evil. That's the only place that this can come from. And so their working hypothesis is that Jesus is possessed by a demon and that evil forces are now behind the miracles. And they're super convicted about this. I mean, just think how far they've come. They've come from Jerusalem, we're told, uh, verse 22. That's 170 kilometers uh, from where, they are, where, they, um, where Jesus is doing his ministry. And so in the next verses, Jesus gives his reply to the teachers and the leaders. It's interesting that when people are on the right track in identifying Jesus, he remains silent. But when they have something wrong, then Jesus speaks clearly and boldly to them. And we're going to learn more about this uh, next week, but Jesus speaks in parables to them. And for the time being, it's just enough for us to know that this means that he is speaking judgment upon them. 
Please don't misunderstand what's happening in this conversation. It's not a friendly conversation. It's not a civil debate between Jesus and these leaders. Jesus is looking into the eye of those who are accusing him of being possessed by a demon. People who should recognize who he is. And he's bringing a verdict on them with his words. The first thing he says is, your argument doesn't even make any sense, first of all. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? Well, back in chapter 1, Mark told us about the fact that the evil one, the accuser, the, the Satan, has made a claim to be the ruler of this world, to build up his kingdom, to build up a house for himself so that he can overthrow God. Well, here Jesus points out if, 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 if Satan is trying to build a house and rip down the walls at the same time, he's working against himself. It's a house divided. The whole house is just going to crumble and fall to bits. It's just impossible that Jesus would be working for Satan while driving out demons. But more significantly, because the teachers have got his identity wrong, they don't understand what Jesus is doing. They don't understand his mission. In the context of talking about the kingdom of Satan, Jesus tells a parable about breaking into the strong man's house. And in that parable, the strong man who possesses things is Satan. Jesus' mission is not to work with Satan, but to go into his house and take away the things that are his. And this is not going to be gentle. He's not going to lull Satan to sleep and tiptoe around the house. He's going to enter the strong man's house. He's going to throw him to the ground. He's going to bind him up so that he is powerless to be able to stop his possessions from being taken off from him. And that word uh, plunder uh, gives us a really great sense of uh, how much Jesus is going to go into the house and take back for the kingdom of God. It's a real word of uh, overthrowing, overpowering, overcoming. That's what Jesus' ministry is all about. He's not on Satan's side. I mean, you think uh, of all the promises that Satan made to Jesus in the desert. Follow me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, he said. Well, Jesus here is saying, I'm just going to take those kingdoms for myself. I'll take them by force because I'm powerful than you. The teachers have called Jesus a liar. And so Jesus then goes on to give them a very serious warning in verse 28. He says, I tell you, truly, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now this question almost always comes up as a question in Christianity Explored. What is this eternal sin that Jesus talks about? What if I were to commit it? What if I've already committed it? Is it too late for me? Well, this is actually quite a simple verse when we read it in its context. Can I say, first of all, don't miss verse 30 when we're looking at this. Jesus uh, said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So when we read back to chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, you know that God has given his Holy Spirit to Jesus to show his approval and to empower his ministry. So in accusing Jesus of being a liar, the teachers have said that the work of the Holy Spirit is in fact the work of evil spirits. If you like, they're accusing God of being evil. The message of the Son of God has been, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe 
the good news. And Jesus' ministry has gone out to God's people to ask them to repent of their sins to God, to leave the kingdom of Satan and to come into God's kingdom. You see, genuine repentance is met with genuine and wonderful forgiveness of God. So don't miss verse 28 in what Jesus says. He says, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. So what is this eternal sin? Well, in the end, it's rejecting Jesus. It's rejecting the Spirit's work. It's rejecting God. The person who never asks Jesus for forgiveness never receives it. But Jesus is not talking about a one-off incident here. It's not a one-off sin. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it's a present and it's a continuing thing. It's not an episode, it's a way of life. It's an unbroken, relentless and eternal sin. And it comes without any kind of forgiveness. If you like, it's a radical refusal to be converted. It was Don Carson who said that hell will be filled with people who refuse to repent of their sins. They refused in this life and they'll refuse in the one to come. And so, so God will never forgive them, neither in this life nor in the world to come. So Jesus' words are a very uh, serious warning to the teachers and to us. We need to read these words very soberly. Now, I don't know of anyone who says, oh, Jesus, he's a liar. I don't know anyone who's ever used that phrase with such boldness. But if Jesus says, I'm the Son of God, and at the cross I have defeated Satan, and I offer you forgiveness, trust me. If you don't take up Jesus' offer of infinite grace and incredible mercy with all the power of the Son of God, if we don't reach out and take hold, then at some point we're saying to Jesus, I don't believe you. But the warning here is not the final judgment. If you were to ask for forgiveness, then remember, Jesus says, verse 28, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. You see, turning to Jesus is the end of blaspheming the Spirit. It breaks the cycle of sin. So take heart. Mark would know all about repentance. Remember, he's written down the account that would have come from the Apostle Peter. This is the Peter, who denies Jesus three times, yet is reinstated, he is forgiven, and he is restored by Jesus. goes to show that we can be too. We must come to Jesus and ask. I know there'll be people here in this room, there'll be people watching on the live stream up in the top hall as well, who want to have more questions about this. Certainly you can ask in Q&A, but can I encourage you, get in touch with me. And we'll start a conversation about how this applies uh, to your life too. Especially if you're worried that maybe you can't be forgiven by God. If you read a passage like this and you're feeling discouraged because you think you're too far gone. This passage is actually encouragement for those who come to Jesus. He will forgive all sins and all slander when there's genuine repentance uh, from sin. So please make use of that. Give me a text. Tomorrow I'll text you back and we'll start a conversation as well. It brings us to our third category, our last category for this morning, uh, where Jesus' family calls him a lunatic. 
So lastly, we come to the request of Jesus' mother and Jesus' siblings. They want to speak to the one who belongs to their family. You see, they don't recognise him as anything more than their biological connection. And they come to verse 21 to, quote, take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They think he's a lunatic. They think he's crazy for all the teachings, all the attention, all the fuss. Who is this guy? He must be out of his mind. Yet Jesus refuses to go with them. Verse 34, here are my brother, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. This episode clearly says, if you think Jesus is crazy, you're going to end up standing outside. Perhaps more remarkable is the fact that it gives us a different and much more personal view of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not just a place of forgiveness from sin. It certainly is. But the kingdom of God is a family of God's people. You see, the Son of God considers us brothers and sisters and mothers. We've been adopted by God himself into his family. So whatever our life was beforehand, whatever our identity was before, we've been brought now into God's family when we trust in the Son. So as sons, we have relationship and identity and a title that has been given to us because of Jesus. We have a relationship with God to be able to call him father. We have an identity with Jesus to call him brother. And the title of forgiven is stamped utterly, thoroughly, irremovably on us by the Spirit so that we are evermore sons of God. We will never be anything else. And we will never be anything less. No matter what Satan and the sons of demons try, we will never be possessed by anything else again. And so look around, brothers and sisters. It's weird, it's, it's un-Anglican to ask for it, but just have a quick look around at the other faces here, up in the top room as well. By the way, if you're on the live stream, this is one of the great reasons why you need to come to church. You need to see the faces of your brothers and sisters here. Because in Jesus, family is who we are towards each other. We're called children of God. We're called sons. And we bear the family fingerprint, forgiven. And so we join Jesus in doing the will of the Father. And God arranges little family reunions, if you like, all over the world every week. Not just here at Christ Church, but think along the river, St. Anne's Ride, West Ride Anglican, not just the Anglican churches, by the way, Baptist ones, the Presbyterian ones, the other Christian denominations, they all gather little family reunions all over Australia, all over the world, to remind themselves that God is our great God and to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. We're not some bunch of randoms who just happen to live in the same suburb. We are a gathering of the adopted sons of God. And what Jesus here describes is how we should treat each other in church. Older women are to be treated as mothers. Younger men as fathers. uh, Older men as fathers. Younger women as sisters and younger men as brothers. Church should be seen as family. You see, when we gather, that's who we are. It's how we care for each other, how we relate to each other, how we support each other. And for some, church family will be an extension of a Christian family home. For others, the Christian church will be the first family who loves Jesus. And for some, 
the church will be the only family that they know. No matter what it is that brings you here into our family together in Christ, our identity is found in Jesus. And on tomorrow's podcast, I'm going to ask Dave, I'm going to ask Mandy some questions about what that could look like here at our church. So make sure you tune in to the passage tomorrow. So Lord, liar, lunatic, who do you think that Jesus is? Now, our society may add other categories on top of the three that C.S. Lewis said, but the point remains that you'll only be able to see Jesus' remarkable power. You'll only be able to see his kingdom, his forgiveness, and his acceptance when you understand who he is. So as we talk to our friends, as we pray for Gladesville and Putney and the Ride District, our great hope is that many will come to ask themselves, who is this Jesus? And that they would see that he is so much bigger than they could possibly imagine. How about I pray? Our Father, thank you for the wonderful joy it is of having this word that so wonderfully describes Jesus to us as the Son of God. You have even the demons proclaiming the truth in this passage in a way that the humans at the time weren't able to understand or understood. We ask, Heavenly Father, you would help us to see clearly that identity of Jesus as your representative in human flesh, God himself, divine and our Lord and King, right in front of us. We thank you so much for his offer of forgiveness to all. And we ask, Father, that those who need to take up his offer would do so. We ask those who have taken up his offer to now live it, to love one another as family in their church family and to love those outside that they might come to be part of family as well. We thank you for the, for the generosity and the wonder it is of knowing Jesus. Please help us to live like we are your children this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.